A word of prayer as we remain standing. Oh God, take my words and speak through them. Take our minds and think through them. And take our will and set them on fire for love of your Son. Amen. Please be seated. Start with a brief uh, story from history. There seemed to be little hope for the church in China. The uh, modern missionary efforts began around the year 18, around the 1800s. Now, certainly the church had been present and missionary work had uh, been present in China from the very earliest days, but in earnest uh, for the modern era, 1800s. Names like Hudson Taylor, that may be a name that you're familiar with. Hudson Taylor, who said, God is not looking for great people of great faith, but for individuals ready to follow him. And Hudson Taylor was one who followed God and served in China, serving with about 7,000 other missionaries at the peak of involvement. By the year 1930, all these numbers are a little bit rough, uh, tabulating populations uh, many, many years ago. is always a little bit of rough science, but it's estimated by the year 1930, the little church in China had grown to about 350,000. That sounds significant, and no doubt it is. But compared to the overall population at the time of around 400 million, that, uh, that's only a tenth of a fraction, a tenth of a percentage point of, of the entire population. So a pretty nominal, pretty, pretty small population. And the tide turned for the worse for the church in the 1930s. Of course, World War II, Japan uh, invaded China. Most missionaries fled. Those missionaries who did not flee were placed in internment camps. The fate of the Christian church fared no better after World War II, an intense civil war followed by a communistic and atheistic government. So when the doors to the West opened again and the doors to the church were opened again, it was hard to find anyone who was very optimistic about the fate of the church. But lo and behold, not only did the church survive, uh, but the church grew. And not only did it grow, but it grew at an astounding rate, a, a, even a supernatural rate, from 350,000 in 1900 to over 58 million in 1990. This despite isolation. This despite no support from the missionaries which gave it birth. This despite very hostile settings. A supernatural growth. And I start with that story from history because I believe it is similar to the church in Thessalonica. That's the letter we're studying in the fall. Like the church in China, there were good reasons to doubt the vitality of the church in Thessalonica. The birth of the church is recorded in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they, and they include the apostle Paul, who is the author of this letter, uh, and the missionary who founded the church. Now when they came to Thessalonica, Thessalonica is on the northeast, is in the harbor town in the northeast of, of Greece, a very busy, bustling city. Now when they came to Thessalonica, Paul went, as was his custom, chapter 17, verse 2, on three consecutive Sabbath days to the synagogue. So he was there for three weeks. And while he was there, he reasoned from the scriptures, explaining that this Jesus whom I proclaim is the Christ. And he had some success. We read in verse 4 that... Some were persuaded, including a few devout women. And then verse 5, but wicked men formed a mob 
set the city in uproar. Some of his companions were imprisoned, and Paul and his companions made it out of the city just barely, fleeing by night. And as they fled, I imagine that they, like those missionaries many years later, thought that we just don't have much hope for the success, for the vitality of this little community which has been prematurely cut off from its support, which is exists in a hostile territory. So can you imagine just the joyful surprise when these, this little missionary team composed of Paul and his companions begin to hear rumors of the vitality and the health of the church in Thessalonica. Can you imagine the joy with which he wrote as he wrote in verse 3 that he is able to, I have heard of your faith, your hope, your love. Verse 8 of this letter, chapter 1, that you have not only received God's word, but God's word has sounded forth from you like the resounding of a trumpet. The question I want to consider with you is what is the seed that Paul and his companions planted? You know, the seed is nature's most fatty food because in a seed lies everything necessary for that little seed to grow into a plant, a tree. What was the seed that Paul and his missionary companions planted? It was the same seed that was planted by those missionaries in China so many years later. A seed with remarkable, almost supernatural potency. Turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to observe that the one seed that Paul planted was composed of two parts, both of his actions of what he did and his attitude of how he did it. Let's look first at what he did. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 6, explain what the apostle did. And I see two distinct activities. I wonder if you see them as well. Look at verse 4. Just as we have been approved by God, we have been entrusted with the gospel. And what we've been entrusted with, we speak. I see two primary activities that he identifies. First, he is a trustee, a steward. He has been given something, the gospel, that he is not created, but he is responsible for. I have been entrusted with the gospel. Now, bears with some repetition from last week. We don't have the gospel explained to us here, but we can uh, summarize by simply saying the gospel is the good news of Jesus Christ who died to save sinners and died to reveal God's love for the world. That is the good news that Paul has been entrusted with. And so his first responsibility as is as a steward with responsibility to guard what has been, protect what has been entrusted to him. Second responsibility is related. Not only is he to protect what has been given to him, but also he is to proclaim it. What has been entrusted to me, I now speak to you. And you can see the rest of the opening verses of this chapter are simply uh, his reiteration of how he spoke, not with, with impure motives. He spoke with pure motives, not impure motives. He used open methods. It is interesting to note that as the apostle explains his missionary activity, he does so primarily in relation to what he said. Of all the possible activities that the apostle could mention, he describes his activity amongst them in relationship to the gospel, first as its steward to protect it and then as its herald to proclaim it. 
Again, some repetition from last week. Of all the possible activities of the church, this one of protecting and proclaiming what has been received, the good news of Jesus Christ who died for sinners, is preeminent. The church is not primarily a communal organization whose primary responsibility is to care for its members. Is that important? Absolutely. The church is not primarily a social organization whose primary concern is to care for the needs of society. Is that important? Do we do that? Absolutely. Absolutely. But what is the one thing that makes the church distinct? It is both a guardian and a herald of the good news. This is the church's central vocation, and the way the apostle describes his ministry among them is in relationship to the gospel. His vision, like our vision, is split in two. With one eye, he looks back on what he has received. On the, with the other eye, he looks out to those who must hear. That is what he did. Now, let's think about how he did it. From his activity to his attitude. We find this in verses 7 through 12. Three words which describe his relationship to the church jump off the page to me. Follow along with me. Verse 7. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Verse 9, like a brother, I labored, I toiled, I set an example for you. Verse 12, verse 11, you know how like a father with us children we exhorted you and we encouraged you. Rather than digging deeply into the stereotypes of uh, roles within the home, I think what is surprising about this passage is that the, the apostle describes his relationship to the church in unapologetically familial language. Like a mother, I cared. Like a father, I encouraged. Like a brother, I set an inspiring example. Now, some people call me Father Glade. I always think, who are you talking to? I don't like the term father. If you need a, a formal term, Pastor Glade, I guess is okay. Mr. Glade is, or David would be equally appropriate. I don't like the term, but I like what the term father conveys. Mother, brother convey the same thing that the church at its best should function, should feel like a family. And something happens in a healthy church. It's something that they uh, don't prepare you for in seminary. They don't talk about it in textbooks. But in a good church, a love affair begins. God forbid, not the romantic type, but the type of familial love that pervades a good family. And that fam familial love exists between a pastor and his people, and hopefully the people and his pastor. That familial love exists between members of, with one another. This is, does not mean that there are never disagreements, there's never hurt feelings, but it does mean that should, there should be a general atmosphere or attitude when you walk into the doors of any healthy church, the attitude of familiarity, affection, yes, even love. That these people care for one another like a family cares for itself. And this familial love is not due to any program or any personality. I think this familial love that you can sense when you walk into a healthy church is only attributable to the Spirit of Christ whose first gift is the gift of love. 
what he did, how he did it. Taking a step back, I think we can discern two elements of the one seed that the apostle planted. First, as he began his ministry in Thessalonica, he was committed to the truth of God in the gospel to both protect it as a steward and to proclaim it as a herald. Second, as the apostle began his missionary work in Thessalonica, he was committed to the people of God, to their care as a mother for a child, as a father for their young son, as a brother to set an example, to love them as family. His two commitments were truth and love. You may be wondering, what does this have to do with me? How does this look back in history, have anything to say, to, to, uh, have anything to apply to me? Well, let me offer a couple of possible applications. First, this, his, this description of his missionary activity is not just the description of one church planter making, planting one church. I think this description is ap actually a prescription. It should be true of every church. In other words, these two commitments which define his activities should define us as well. Every church should be committed to both protecting and proclaiming the gospel. And every church should be committed to the people of God to care for them as family. Truth and love are not just descriptive of his efforts. These two priorities inform a biblical vision of the church. A biblical vision of the church. And it's important that we have a clear idea of what the church is and what it should be doing. Otherwise, we're going to be disillusioned. There's many good reasons to be disillusioned with the church. But make sure if you are disillusioned, you're disillusioned for the right reason. Some of us have unreasonable expectations. Before we're disenchanted, make sure you're properly enchanted with this biblical vision of a people of God committed to guarding the trust of the gospel and proclaiming it, and to the people of God committed to one another as a family. I do have some remarks about those who may be looking for a church, but I see all familiar faces here, so I'm gonna to skip to my other point of application. Second point of application is this. These twin commitments are not just, are not just true of the Apostle Paul, not just true of leaders of the church, not just true of the church in general, but they should be, by God's grace, will be true for you and me. Truth, a commitment to the truth, and the commitment to love. I wonder, can you think of any two greater priorities for you and me than just those? Not one without the other, not truth without love, which is harsh, not love without truth, which is weak but the truth of the gospel combined for the love of God's people. This is the seed which Paul planted, and though the soil was unpromising, though it was left in isolation, that seed grew into a tree. I believe every ministry begins with this dual commitment, and every follower of Christ should maintain these dual commitments. And I wonder here this morning, if we can ask the Spirit of Christ to convict us of the truth of the gospel and to fill us with his greatest gift, the gift of love. I conclude with another story from history. We began by thinking about the church in China, that powerful seed which grew in unpromising soil. Let me close with another story from the same era. Eric Little was one of those missionaries who went to China. You may know of Eric, that name, through the Chariots of Fire. 
Recall that Eric was an Olympic runner and won the 440, a race that he had not trained for, but a race he ran because the race he had trained for fell on the Sabbath. There's a great line when Eric says, I will go to China, but first I will run. And God made me fast. I feel his pleasure when I run. It's worth watching again if you have not seen it recently. Eric did go to China. And in the World War II, he was one of those missionaries that was placed in an internment camp, not a prisoner, a prison camp like you may think of in Europe, but an internment camp where the resources were sparse. He was placed in an internment camp called the Sheng Tung Compound. And the Sheng Tung Compound is the, the title of a book written by Langdon Gilkey who was a prisoner in this internment camp and wrote about his experience. He wrote about it, the book, The Sheng Tung Compound, was published in 1966, well before the Chariots of Fire made Eric Little a name of some renown. And Gilkey observes and records Eric's behavior. Indulge me as I read just a little bit. One of the challenges within this internment camp was simply too much time, too much idle time, especially for the youth. The parents had said, run along and find something to do, and the kids had done exactly that. A camp meeting was called, no one volunteered anything constructive, and quote, the meeting ended on a note of unmitigated gloom. And to no one's real surprise, the crisis was finally dealt with by the missionary teachers, none of them who had children that, that age. They'd advise programs, evening entertainments, games, etc. The man who did more than anyone to the teenage to meet the teenage problem was Eric Little. It is rare indeed when a person meets a saint, but Eric came as close to it as anyone I've ever known. Most nights, Eric would be bent over a chessboard or a model boat, absorbed, warm, and interested pouring all of himself into his effort to capture the minds and imaginations of those pinned-up youth. If anyone could have done it, he could have. A track athlete, he had won the 440 in the Olympics in the 20s and then had come to China as a missionary. In the camp, he was now in his 40s, but still with a spring in his step, good humor, and love of life. Others helped, but it was Eric's enthusiasm and charm that carried the day. Now, shortly before camp ended, he was stricken with a brain tumor and died that same day. The entire camp, especially the youth, were left stunned for days. So great was the vacuum that Eric's death had left. I close there simply one example of one follower of Christ who shared two fundamental commitments. The first, commitment to the gospel, to protect it and to proclaim it. Second, a commitment to the people of God, to care for them as a father, mother, or brother. Truth and love. May God fill his church with you and me with these two vital commitments.